I have wanted to talk to you for a while now about some challenges facing the church of Jesus Christ. But I knew that our text today, Hebrews 13, 17, was coming. That text, obey your leaders and submit to them. It's even worse when you understand the word obey means to put your trust or put your confidence in your leaders so that you can't submit to them. And some of you, no doubt, given current events, rightly think, how, how can we do that? How can we obey, submit to leaders given the abuses that we see in the world and in the church. I want you to know that I understand that concern and it is a legitimate question. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, let me share discreetly some of those current events. For decades now, the Catholic Church has come under much deserved scrutiny for sexual abuse perpetrated by their clergy, clergy particularly on children. And you may say, that's true, but we're not Catholic, we're evangelical, and you're right. And yet, the so-called Me Too movement has found its way to the evangelical church. I suppose we thought ourselves immune as professing followers of Jesus Christ to such sinful, horrible activity. As you likely know, the Me Too movement is the name given the rightful exposure and prosecution of largely men using their positions of authority to take advantage of people under them, primarily women. You see, it's not just children, is it? Whether the entertainment industry such as Hollywood producers or actors or music moguls or politicians or military leaders or the medical community and now the church, no one seems exempt. There's been much in the news lately that even pastors have used their positions of, of authority to sin greatly. Just a few years ago, the charge was brought against the SGC, the Sovereign Grace Churches Movement, that they had covered up or dismissed instances of abuse by those in authority, even suggesting that that abuse not be reported to the authorities. We'll just keep it in-house, was the idea. So it flew under the radar for a while until the evangelical church started facing again its own Me Too movement. More recently, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., has also been found to allow some pastors so accused to simply walk away only to serve as pastors elsewhere. It's a mess. And by the way, it is not just physical or sexual abuse, but sometimes pastors have exercised ungodly, dogmatic, dictatorial, aggressive, spiritual authority. Recently, some big-name pastors, I could give, them, give you their names, you would know them, have been fired because of their verbal, arrogant, offensive abuse of staff, elders, and others, their, the, because of their lack of accountability and their lack of financial transparency. It is grievous to me. 
There's much I could say about all this. Many I could quote in a positive way, uh, men like Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, or women like Beth Moore, who wrote an open letter to evangelical leaders. It is worth reading. But allow me to quote Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, who in an op-ed published just two months ago said, when churches do cover up abuse... They often justify it. Does that make anybody angry? They often justify it by acting as if they are preventing the world from seeing the scandal. If the public saw such a dark reality, they say, they might not want to hear the gospel, the reasoning goes. Nonsense. Jesus does not need the church to protect his reputation. And Jesus was and is enraged by those who would seek to blame him for empowering atrocities. I would say further, he is enraged by those who perpetrate such atrocities. Russell uh, Russell Moore goes on to write that we should not be covering up such abuses. And I would add further. The church should be a place where those so abused find understanding, shepherding, loving care. All too often, they find instead dismissive, uncaring, it's just the way things are, attitudes. Moore finished his article with these ominous words, a world in need of good news is watching to see just how born again we are. And so I come today with this text before us, obey your leaders and submit to them. And perhaps some of you have obeyed and submitted and faced spiritual, mental, verbal, physical, or sexual abuse outside and inside the church. If the statistics are right and they are probably understated, many of you have faced abuse from boyfriends, from family members, from coworkers, supervisors, and incredibly church leaders. And so to you, I want to gently and clearly say, I am deeply sorry. In the name of Jesus, I ask you to forgive those who have appropriately sought repentance I would ask you to forgive the church for its egregious oversight and allow the church to bring fruit in keeping with repentance. We must lay our sin at the feet of Jesus and accept the rightfully placed responsibility. And so as I begin to read and teach this text, I want you to know very clearly that I am not calling for unqualified submission to ungodly leadership. Let me say that again. I am not calling for unqualified submission to ungodly leadership. Abuse will not be tolerated in this church further. I want us to be a safe place for people who have been marginalized, uncared for, or dismissed in situations of past abuse. I am sorry. 
forgive us for any way in which we have done that. I will make some further qualifications as I teach through the text, but the overriding principle is submission to godly leadership. And inasmuch as leadership is not godly, it will be handled, it will be dealt with rightly. Perhaps not perfectly. We haven't always done it rightly. But we will seek to be holy. And as the author says today, we will try to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So, let's read the text with the understanding that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be different from the world. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is now the second to the last study in, our, in the book of Hebrews. The author has been encouraging and warning his readers, ultimately reminding them of the supreme value of Christ who is our greatest treasure. And so he has been saying, do not leave him. I would suggest, for example, if you leave him, I want to say, if you leave, it will bring grief to me and it will be unprofitable for you. That's the context. He's now closing his letter, giving some rather random final instructions. He has said things like, let brotherly love continue, show hospitality, remember the prisoners, honor marriage, be content, continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, do not neglect in doing good and sharing, and, and remember those who led you. And that last one was found back in verse 7, and he seemed to be referring to past leaders who were, were now dead. And he said, don't forget this, remember those who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate them. The implication was leaders speak and live the word of God and inasmuch as they do, imitate them. And if they don't, then don't. There are plenty of examples uh, of those who have faithfully taught and lived the gospel, and there are plenty of examples of those who have not. He now gets to verse 17 and speaks of present leaders, living leaders, to include himself. But, but the earlier truth still applies. Leaders in the church speak and live the Word of God, and as they do, Obey and submit to their leadership. If they don't, don't. We'll give you the outline of the text. Quite simple. Obey your leaders. Pray for your leaders. And then he's going to give a personal prayer request. I suppose we should start by defining who our leaders are. It is a general word for leaders, speaking of all of those who, have, uh, who, have, who lead in some capacity with some kind of authority. But here it is used within the context of the church, so it certainly includes elders, not exclusively, but it includes them. It gives me the opportunity to discuss briefly, briefly, our form of church government or polity. Now, 
We are truly an alliance of people here, believers who have come from a variety of different churches and denominations and have therefore uh, uh, understood a lot of different church governments. Many of you have been in churches of congregational rule, sort of a pure democracy where every member, regardless of spiritual maturity, um, has a vote on all matters involving the church, whether it's carpet color or who to call as the next pastor. As much as that satisfies our democratic leanings and fits the U.S. Constitution, it is really not found in the New Testament. I suppose in this model, we would all submit to one another's leadership. No, we certainly submit to one another, but we submit to one another's leadership since we all have a vote in the leadership. Another form of church government is the Episcopal model from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or overseer. This, kind of, this is kind of a hierarchical form of government where a local church is governed by a priest or a rector or a, or a, uh, a pastor who reports to a bishop outside of the local church. There's actually more biblical support for this kind of government than the first one, than congregational rule. And so in this church, people submit to the lead pastor who in turn submits to a bishop who in turn submits to the hierarchy of the denomination, going up and up and up. Another model, while not usually acknowledged, is the senior pastor model. You could call it the totalitarian model. This is most abhorrent to me. That is, the lead pastor is the supreme leader in the church under, of course, Jesus, What the leader says goes, everyone follows him, I suppose, as he follows Christ. The challenge, besides being thoroughly unbiblical, is there is no accountability for this singular leader, which leads to the last model, which happens to be ours, the Presbyterian or the elder form of church leadership. I'm not going to take the time this morning uh, to run through all of the Scripture that supports this model, but... (laughs) Trust me when I suggest it is the most biblically faithful. And it actually makes the most sense. God calls a group of qualified and gifted men to serve the church in this way. By the way, the qualifications of elders is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Their duties are found largely in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter chapter 5, as well as some other passages. The primary, listen, the primary function of the elder is to shepherd That's what the word pastor means, by the way, is to shepherd the church through leading, feeding, and protecting. (laughs) They're supposed to protect the body, not abuse the body. So in our context, elders are the leaders of the church. And there is the responsibility of oversight, yes, of management, of leading. And so as leaders are qualified, called, gifted, and godly, we are to obey them and submit to their authority. Now, I said the word we on purpose. Yes, I am an elder at this church, but I am not the lead elder, whatever that is. I am not the supreme leader. Do not call me Reverend uh, Kim Young Un. There is a plurality of elders who mutually lead and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we together then have a responsibility to obey and submit to our godly leaders as those leaders themselves, listen, obey and submit to Christ 
and his word, should they fail to themselves obey and submit to the word of God, we do not obey and submit to them. There is a sense in which the authority lies with the Word of God. What I mean is, as leaders are submitting to the Word, we submit to them. If they do not, the authority, if you will, reverts to the people who are obeying the Scripture. If the elders get out of line, fire them and get some other ones. Of course, if no one is obeying the Scripture, then it's a total mess. To be clear... We should not allow leaders to lead apart from or contrary to the Word of God. Now, not all leaders in the church are necessarily elders. For example, Marcy leads our women's ministry, and we should submit to her leadership. The same can be said of Hallie in children's ministry and Hunter in our worship ministry and many others. But that is also not to say that the, that the only other leaders are on staff. That's not true. No, those who lead in any capacity should be obeyed, submitted to as they obey and submit to leadership and to the Scripture. The author goes on to tell us why. He says it two reasons. First, for the sake of the leaders, and second, for your sake. It's good for you. First, for the sake of the leaders. Notice they keep watch over your souls. A couple of important things about that. The phrase keep watch carries with it the idea of sleeplessness, meaning leaders who lead well are deeply and passionately concerned about their people, that is, their souls, to the point of, he is suggesting, losing sleep. We remember the words of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists a lot of, frankly, external physical sufferings for, for Christ, things like imprisonment and beating and danger of death and stoning and shipwrecks and danger of robbers and countrymen from Gentiles in the city and the wilderness on the sea, labor, hardships, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and cold exposure. It was a miserable, miserable experience, this following Jesus. Apparently, he didn't know the prosperity gospel. But apart from such external things, he says... There is the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Put all of my physical suffering over here and my concern for the churches over here, and it outweighs that. Sleepless nights. A good and godly leader is concerned about the church, not just external things. Notice the author also says they keep watch over what? Your souls. That's the real you, the eternal part of you. Not, not necessarily concerned about your physical cares and comforts, although it certainly includes physical care. That's why we have a thing called the Benevolence Fund. But infinitely greater, they care for your eternal souls, for your spiritual well-being, where you will spend eternity, how you grow in your sanctification, that is your holiness, as we together make this journey toward the city that God is preparing. The godly leader wants his or her people to be discipled and to grow like Jesus. I said his or her because women lead in various capacities in the church. A godly leader says, um, uh, excuse me, a, a good and godly pastor wants his people to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't just want to hear it himself. Listen, I want you to understand, I want you to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. That will bring me joy. A godly leader says with John in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy, no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking 
and the truth. That's why the author wrote this particular book. I want to hear that you are walking with the truth, not away from the truth. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, for who is our hope or or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. He told the Philippian church, I want you to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I want to be clear. I want to get to heaven and see you there being rewarded because of the way that you have faithfully followed Christ. That will bring me great joy. Further, he says, leaders, keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Language speaks of giving an account to God. This is fearful. I mean, what does he mean? Does this mean that leaders will give an account for others' good and bad deeds? Certainly not. But perhaps how they led or didn't lead, how they cared or didn't care, how they loved or didn't love, or how they abused. They will give an account of their leadership, and it seems that leadership, good or bad, can have an impact on the souls of others. Certainly not their eternal salvation, but their growth and care. Obey them. Do what they say as it is right so that they can give an account for your souls with joy and not with grief. The grief will perhaps come in two ways, through poor leadership or through poor followership. You see... They will give an account for poor leadership, yes, and they will give an account for you not following rightly, for not obeying God's word as rightly taught. Let me be clear about that. Obeying your leaders does not mean, hey, would you go wash my car? I've never asked anybody to do that. I will not ask you to do that. But I will say to you, be hospitable, because that's in the Bible. Obey me, because it's in the Bible. Love one another deeply from the heart, because that's in the Bible. Be content with what you have. I will say that. Obey me because that's in the book. You see. Rightly submitting to godly leadership. This is why James says this accountability idea. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Teachers, leaders, pastors, elders, Teachers, I don't care if you're teaching in a small group or if you're teaching in a children's Sunday school class, I don't care. You will give an account and the judgment will be stricter. Take it seriously. So obey, submit in such a way that their accounting will bring joy and not grief Yes, joy, because after countless hours of work and countless hours of sleepless nights watching over your souls, they find joy when you're accounting, when you give an account and it is praiseworthy. Yes, grief, perhaps because of poor leadership, but also because of poor followership. The author goes on to say, grief caused by not obeying, not submitting, will be unprofitable for you. I want you to understand that every one of us as followers of Christ will give an account to God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for deeds done rightly and to lose rewards for those done wrongly. Live in such a way, I am encouraging you as your pastor, live in such a way that it will be spiritually profitable for you. And that will bring me great joy. That all brings us to our second point, not to worry. Most of it was the first one. Pray for your leaders. Interesting. 
The author seems to have been personally connected to his readers. We're not sure how. The next verse, he speaks of being restored to them. Most agree he had been a leader in this church with this group of believers. And now having reminded them to obey godly leaders, he says, pray for us. Pray for your leaders as well. Pray for us. I want you to understand that the task is enormous with awesome responsibility and accountability. That's not a woe is me statement. I do it with great joy, with great passion, with great love. But it is awesome task of responsibility and accountability. I will give an account for how I have led. And so will many of you. Pray for us that we perform the task well, rightly, godly. Listen, I want to be very clear. If you, are look, if you look for faults in your leaders, you will not have to look hard to find them. Elders and leaders are not perfect. Yes, they are supposed to meet the qualifications, elders, of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, but no one will meet them perfectly. We are not without sin. We are not without our personal failures. We too need to grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness. So he says, pray for us. The best thing, listen, listen, this is so important. The best thing that you can do for your leaders, godly leaders, and I'm not talking about ungodly ones, the best thing that you can do for your godly leaders is not to complain about them to others, but to talk about them to God. I know it's fun. Rose pastor for lunch. I know that tastes good. Look what he says next. For we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Interesting. He says the reason that I can ask you to pray for us leaders is because our conscience is currently clear God knows that we desire to conduct ourselves rightly, honorably, above reproach in all things. And I want you to think about that. Those leaders in the evangelical church, the ones I talked about in the introduction, they do not have a clear conscience. They, they, they probably do not sleep at night, not because of those they lead, but because of those they have misled. They are not seeking to live honorably, and there's no, they cannot ask for this kind of prayer, not in this sense, that they may continue to live honorably, because they are not. Perhaps they should pray for repentance, which as an aside is perhaps how we should pray for ungodly leaders, pastors, elders, lay leaders who have significantly missed the mark. Perhaps we should pray for their repentance, and then having repented, God, per the promise of Scripture, would forgive them and restore them, perhaps not the leadership. They may not deserve it, but they do deserve forgiveness if they repent. This brings us to the last point. Very quickly, the author's personal prayer request, verse 19. I urge you all the more to do this. That is, pray for me so that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is how most, again, suggest that the author has been connected to his readers in some way in the past. Given the context, he has been a leader with them in the past. But notice this personal prayer request. I call you to do this abundantly all the more. I urge you to pray for me earnestly. Very interesting. Not for personal gain. Again, given the current context in which we find ourselves, many leaders want your prayers for personal prosperity. 
But this author, a former leader in the church, urges prayer for himself. Why? That he may be restored to them sooner. His concern is not personal. It is for them. Pray for me so that I can care for you rightly. That's what he says. For this, for your spirits will benefit. I'm reminded of the number of times that Paul Ask for prayer from his churches. Consider, in Romans 1, he says, he prays always asking that, they may suc- that he may succeed in coming to see them at, R- at Rome, a, t- a church to which he had never been. Why? Because I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He says, pray for me that I can care for you. So he gets to chapter 15, near the end of his letter. He says, I urge you, pray for me that I may be rescued. Yes, that the the service of the saints of Jerusalem may prove acceptable. Yes, but so that I may come to you by the will of God. At the very end of Ephesians, he asked for prayer that he may open his mouth to make known the gospel with boldness. Because you see, it cost him to open his mouth. So pray for me that I'll open my mouth for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for others, you see. The end of Colossians, he asked prayer that God would... Give him an open door for the word so that he could speak the mystery of the gospel of Christ. To the Thessalonians, he asked for prayer that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. Do you see? Pray for me that I get a jet. No! Pray for me that I may proclaim the truth of the word. Rightly. Point is, Paul, our author, and our author asked for prayer ultimately for the benefit of others. Because, my, because of my concern for all the churches, Paul says, because our author wants to be with these, this people to encourage and warn them, to love them, to care for them, to disciple them. Because he could not be with them, he wrote this rich letter of which we are the beneficiaries. So in summary, a church leader, a pastor, an elder, a staff leader, a volunteer leader, Listen, we are all, if you are leading in any capacity, we are to be others focused. This is not about us. We are to care for the flock. It is not for our benefit that we lead, it is for theirs. And we are to lead watching over their souls knowing that we will give an account. We are to seek clear consciences, conducting ourselves honorably in all things. And you, inasmuch as leadership is godly, you are to obey and submit so that our accounting can be done with joy. To not do this, listen, I'm going to say this, I'm going to, this is another warning. It will be unprofitable for you. I don't want that for you. So let's pray for each other that we will be godly together. Join me.